Hi, I'm Andrew. I'm Kirsten. And this is Most Foul. It does feel kind of auspicious, though, that we're doing the 50th episode the day after I turn 50. (laughs) (laughs) Happy birthday to to me. Yes, 50. 50 is my new favorite number. And, I mean, just to acknowledge, 50 episodes. I know. I know. We've been coming up on it. Not counting bonus and mini. Yeah. That we began the journey with and have since lost (laughs) yeah just 50 full regular episodes Uh we gotta plan something big for 100 oh yeah for sure Ooh, that's exciting to think about maybe i'll go there or you'll come here (laughs) oh yeah or maybe we'll live in the same place by then who knows a different country (laughs) Yes, I'm on a move out of the country jag at the moment. We're on a questionable trajectory as a society. (laughs) (laughs) Which, yeah. I mean, it's been a long time coming. And actually, it's taken longer than I expected it would to get this bad. Because I'm I'm such a rosy, rosy outlook optimist. But, yeah. Ugh. Well, I mean, once the Democrats stole that election, everything went downhill. (laughs) Uh, And at the time you've been on vacation, I have switched to full QAnon. (laughs) Imagine. Oh, my God. Yeah. JK, JK. Mm. I know. I actually lost one of my favorite guilty pleasures, which is this really um, trashy but fun blind item gossip blog that I used to read um, that I just got lots of joy from when my kids were little and that was kind of like the only thing I could do would be wake up really early breastfeed and just read trashy gossip Um, but the comments just got like fully taken over by QAnon stuff and I was like I don't know what anybody here is talking about and I don't want to know And, and I lost that part of myself sad. My brother and I were looking at a friend from our youth, Mm -hmm. their Facebook. Mm -hmm. It is nuts. And like, I was scroll. It felt like I was scrolling forever Mm -hmm. through all of these memes and like Trump and vaccines. And I was like scrolling forever. It was like, holy shit, I cannot believe this. And then I looked and it was still two days ago. No. Like the mental illness of just sharing share, meme share, after share. meme after meme of like this insanity. It's like I, I like was really having like a crisis thinking about it. Yeah. The illness that he has and this addiction. Yeah. It, it, it's like because I have a a weird cousin that's also very much this that like shares like is this extreme conservative trump supporter and again i mean facebook is essentially dead to me i'm only there for work Mm -hmm. and if i ever go onto her page it's just like so this is your life yeah this 
is, I guess, what brings you joy, but it's probably anger. Like, it, yeah. it, it's probably not even joy. <laughs> I mean, how can it be? It, ugh, it, yeah. It's just unfathomable. <laughs> I know. I It took me a long, long time, but I'm finally there with Facebook. I just go in when I have to for work, and that's pretty much it. Nothing but, good is happening there. <laughs> no. No. I mean, there are a couple of groups, but, you know, there's no way to just dip in and dip out without having any kind of contact with that stuff. And it bums me out because I've gone back to Instagram, but most people I know are not on Instagram because I'm of that age group <laughs> that's still mostly in Facebook. Yeah, it just, whatever. I just go back to the before times when I didn't know what people who I went to elementary school with are having for breakfast. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I watched a really great show mm -hmm. that now I feel like you need to watch. Okay, and it is me. called Blackbird. I think I saw it and I put it in my watch list, but I haven't seen it. I mean, I saw it, you know, in in my feed or whatever, but it was good. It's all the things that I love. A mini series, a definitive ending, mm -hmm. <laughs> true crime, Taryn Edgerton. Who's that? Oh, Taryn. Played... Taryn. I thought you said Karen. I was like, Karen Edgerton. That doesn't sound <laughs> familiar. <laughs> So, yeah, it's uh, inspired by true events. A convict is, like, recruited by the FBI to go into this maximum security prison for the insane to get details from a serial killer that will stop them from being acquitted. Mm. And Paul Walter Hauser deserves an Emmy for sure for playing Larry Hall. The okay. creepiness... <laughs> the way in which this man can out of nowhere have his face go dead and his eyes go dead mid-conversation. So highly, highly recommend. I was on the edge of my seat. It was so good. Okay. It has fewer women than I typically require in something that I watch, but I'm intrigued. I think it's because it's a male prison. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so there's a lot less opportunity. And I felt like they did a really, really solid job of giving one of the victims, like, I, I felt like they really paid tribute to her. There's a really beautiful episode where a lot of it took place from her perspective. And I thought that they did a really good job of including that and not just having it be, you know, the victims are sort of secondary. Mm -hmm. I was impressed. So I'm I'm looking at it now. It was written and directed by Michael Flatley, the Michael Flatley of Riverdance. Oh. Who... I was like, that name sounds familiar. Yeah, the Riverdance guy. And I'm discovering he is American. What? <laughs> I know. <laughs> This is mind-blowing. Yeah, he's totally American. He's the first American to win the Irish Dance World Championships at age 17. What the fuck? I feel as though if any of our listeners 
are even one year younger than me, they have no idea <laughs> what this is. So go to YouTube and search for Michael Flatley, Lord of the Dance, and just be amazed and and lap it all up. <laughs> Kids these days will never know the infinite amount of commercials for this. <laughs> Same for whatever reason with Celtic women, the, the singing group. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, I feel like um, Anya just really like blew the doors off when it came to like Celtic mysticism, spiritual-ish type of music and dance and... That was the whole thing. The late 80s and 90s were just <laughs> and she is a badass. So she like lives in a castle in Ireland. I think on the islands, like not even on Ireland, but like some little islands off of Scotland or Ireland or somewhere up there, you know, and she does not tour. She refuses to tour or make public appearances. She just makes music in her castle and pushes it out into the world and then collects all the money. Well, she's one of the highest selling musicians of all time. Mm -hmm. And an entire generation has no idea who she is. <laughs> <clears throat> I mean, she's awesome. She is a badass because, yeah, like making money from just your music and not touring, that's a pretty unheard of business model for most musicians. Maybe fans of the Lord of the Rings movie know who she is. Mm. Yeah, I can see crossover there. Like the Ren Fair set. Oscar nominated maybe even Oscar winner for Lord of the Rings song. Oh, really? Uh, I'm such a nerd sometimes. Now I'm like, but maybe Annie Lennox was the one who actually won the Oscar for Lord of the Rings. What a what a ridiculous thing to be thinking about. <laughs> the Venn diagram of Lord of the Rings and me doesn't overlap <laughs> very much. My brother's like duct taped me to a couch one weekend and made me watch all of them in succession, but I've blacked it all out. Perfect films. <laughs> if you're into elves. And then a horrible set of follow-up films. And we'll see how the TV show goes. The Hobbit ones, you mean? Mm-hmm. Such a cash grab. Yeah. I, everybody's all up in arms. Not everybody. You know, the losers are all up in arms about the TV show. But it's like, yeah, but Peter Jackson ruined The Hobbit. So I don't think you can have the same leverage to say, mm. <laughs> like, Lord of the Rings should never be adapted because it was so perfect when the same guy who did it did the next round poorly. Mm -hmm. Where it's like, give it a chance. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, I don't know. People get very, very angsty about those kinds of things and I was I was I'm pausing and being disfluent because I was about to harsh on them but I can also be that way about things that I love so <laughs> you know what just like have your angst and whatever 
Oh yeah, one last thought going back. Um, the Pure Moods CDs. <laughs> I feel like Enya got a lot of play there. I mean, she's a national treasure. I think that's a, a piece of music of the 90s that's just been totally lost. This mm-hmm. like really weird vibey. <laughs> <laughs> I listen to it all the time. It is, right? And then Michael Flatley being a fucking American. You USA, go. USA. Yeah, you go, boy. <laughs> Whatever. I mean, I figured a mullet like that, he had to be foreign. <laughs> <laughs> All that to say, everybody should watch Blackbird. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. I'm glad that he is still, you know, doing his thing and being a creative powerhouse, even if he can no longer dance that way because, you know time are you ready to transition over i cannot wait i know this is this is a really big one and we've waited i mean we've known that we were going to do this one forever and ever because it's a super famous case obviously but also it's local for me and one of my kind of pet cases that has always intrigued me and i've gone back to it again and again since i was a kid I, I think it came up, like, literally brainstorm number one. Yeah, before we had produced any episodes. This was this was in discussion to maybe even be our first episode, I think. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But we decided to save it. Mm-hmm. And episode 50 is the perfect place. Totally. So, you know, again, you've read the episode title... You know that we're going to be talking about Lizzie Borden and that case. And I'm going to start um, kicking it off like we often do, not always. And I'm going to talk a little bit about the background, the setting, and then the crime itself. So are you ready? Absolutely. All right. So Lizzie Andrew Borden was born on July 19th, 1860, and she was born in Fall River, Massachusetts. Her parents were Sarah Anthony Morse, who was born in 1823 and died in 1863, and Andrew Jackson Borden, who was born in 1822 and died in 1892. Lizzie was the youngest of three girls, Emma, the oldest, who was born in 1851, Alice, who was born in 1856 and died two years later, and Lizzie, who was the baby and had actually been christened just that, Lizzie, not Elizabeth. Which, quick interjection. Yeah. You and I already discussed this, but for the listener, mm-hmm. I had no clue her middle name was Andrew. I know, right? Surprising. And Right off the bat. Yeah, a little unusual. And if you were paying close attention, you heard when I said her mother's name, Sarah Anthony Morse, her mother's middle name was also a male name, And it happened that Sarah's father's name was Anthony. So it seems to be, you know, a little bit of a family tradition to take the father's name as a middle name for one of the daughters. Okay, before we talk about Lizzie, I want to talk a bit about the city where her story unfolds, Fall River, Massachusetts. Formerly known as Troy City and before that, prior to the arrival of English colonists, known by the Pocanocket Wampanoag inhabitants as Quickishan. 
Quikishan is a Wampanoag word meaning falling river or leaping water. And it was the name of a nearby river that flowed northwest from South Watupa Pond through the heart of modern Dayfall River and into the Taunton River, right where it meets the Mount Hope Bay. If you go back and listen to episode 23, where we talk about the case of Sonny Von Bulow, I talk a bit about the history of southeastern Massachusetts and Rhode Island, and I go into a bit of detail about the colonial history and King Philip's War, which shaped a lot of how things evolved in, in those locations. Today, though, we're jumping in right about around the Industrial Revolution, which is when Fall River was initially incorporated as an American town, 1803 to be precise. And at the time, the leading families of the area were the Bordens, the Durfees, the Buffingtons, the Davals, and the Cooks, all of whom descended from the original English settlers of the Plymouth and Massachusetts Bay colonies. Now, if you live in this area, New England, Southern New England, you recognize these names because these names are on lots of establishments, street names, building names, pond names, you name it. Um, Bordens, Durfees, Buffingtons, Davals, and Cooks are very common names in these parts because these were very prominent and prolific families. Mm -hmm. So shortly after Fall River was founded, the community leaders adapted the innovations of recent English immigrant Samuel Slater, AKA the father of the American Industrial Revolution. Hello, child labor. And they opened several mills in Fall River. And those... You mean that thing they're trying to bring back? <laughs> yes. <laughs> trying to bring back the child labor because I mean, that's where America is. To be fair, you had to be seven to work in a mill. <laughs> I'm joking. That's awful. So they powered these mills with the, quote, leaping water of the Quickishan River in Fall River. And in 1810, the first national census um, since the founding of Fall River showed that the population was just shy of 1,300 people. By 1890, which is closer to the time of the case that we're going to be discussing, that number had swelled to almost 75,000. Wow. Yeah. So from 1,300 to about 75,000 in 80 years. Huge, huge growth. The vast majority of the growth had been Irish and French Canadian immigrants who were drawn to all of the jobs at the many mills and factories that had been established. And just to give you a sense of this kind of boom town vibe going on, in 1871 and 72 alone, 22 new mills were built. Now, Jeez. yeah. When I say mill, if again, if you don't live in this area and have never seen one, we're talking enormous structures. You know, they could be five stories high and take up, you know, an, a complete city block. They were just enormous. By 1892, Fall River was a center for ironworks, shipbuilding, and most famously, textiles. Nearly 20% of all New England cotton capacity and half of all print cloth production took place in Fall River. 
Fall River was also an important port city for imports, as well as a rail hub for the region. It was a city on a seemingly perpetual ascent, and in this city of limitless opportunities, few people were more powerful or respected than Andrew Jackson Borden. Andrew was descended from the family that had been among Fall River's first families, but he was born to a less prosperous branch of the Borden family. His father, Abraham Bowen Borden, had lost whatever wealth had come to him from his direct line, and Andrew grew up very modestly, and he struggled financially in his youth. In 1845, when he was 23, he married Sarah Anthony Morse, who was 22, and he set out to rebuild the wealth that had been lost by his previous generations. He eventually prospered in the manufacture and sale of furniture and specifically caskets. Um, they, they were making some claim that their special casket process and wood helped remains um, stayed not decomposed for longer, <laughs> <laughs> which obviously would have been a really tough claim to prove, but that was part of their marketing plan. And it worked. Um, he made a lot of money in that business. And then he was a shrewd business person in general. He reinvested his earnings in real estate and property development, which again, because of all of this influx and immigration into the city, was booming as well. Yeah. In 1851, Andrew and Sarah had their first child, Emma, who I mentioned earlier, who was followed by Alice and then Lizzie in 1860. In 1863, when Lizzie was not yet three and Emma had just turned 12, Sarah died at the age of 39, leaving Andrew alone with two young children. So remember, Alice, the second daughter, had predeceased Sarah. Mm -hmm. And he also had many business holdings to attend to. He was on the board of several textile mills and owned a lot of private residences as well as commercial properties. He was president of the Union Savings Bank, and he was on the board of three other local banks. At his death, his estate was valued at $300,000, or the equivalent of about $10 million today. Jeez. Yeah. I've seen that number as 500000 in other places, but I think the 300000 is the more reliable number. But in any event, he was very wealthy by any kind of measure. According to census records in 1865, a maternal aunt lived with the family for a time during the period after Sarah's death, as well as one household servant. But Emma, the oldest daughter, almost certainly stepped in to be a, quote, little mother, as she later described it, to Lizzie, who, again, was just a toddler. There are reports that in the days leading up to Sarah's death, she had asked Emma to take on a really heavy burden, and that was to always care for and watch out for her younger sister, which, by all accounts, Emma took to heart and maintained throughout her life. In 1866, at the age of 43, Andrew married a woman named Abby Durfee Gray, who was then 38. She was well past the age of marriage typical in those days, and it's believed that it was a marriage of convenience for both parties, probably. 
Abby would have, theoretically, gained access to a vast fortune, and Andrew got himself an economical maid and nanny in the bargain. Mm-hmm. But in spite of his tremendous success and wealth, Andrew was known for his extreme thriftiness. And we can see this through a few well-known anecdotes from the time. He apparently collected rent on his many properties personally, and he is said to have carried a basket of fresh eggs from his farm with him on his rounds, offering them for sale to those he encountered along the way. So just this super successful, wealthy businessman out collecting his own rents in person and selling eggs as he goes, you know, (laughs) Mm -hmm. totally normal. (laughs) Very, very normal. And this frugality reportedly extended to every corner of his, and by extension, Emma, Lizzie, and Abby's lives. So rather than living in a comfortable and spacious house on the fashionable side of town, which was known as the Hill, the Bordens lived in a modest house of the sort built for workers and common folk. It was called a railroad house. And so all of the rooms were kind of joined to one another and there were no big hallways. And this will come into play a little bit later, but it was a a very modest kind of house. He claimed to prefer the location because it was close to his various business holdings, but even within the house, his cheapness was pretty extreme. At the time, indoor plumbing was a given for the wealthy and it was increasingly common for everyone. But when the family moved into their last home on 2nd Street, Andrew had the plumbing, which was already extended into the upstairs. He had that plumbing cut off and boxed in, and he deemed it a, quote, luxury. That's insane. Right? That le- So it's not just that he didn't have plumbing extended into the upper part of the house. It was already there, and he had it removed, essentially. So that left the only access to running water in the entire house, a single cold spigot in the basement, or cellar as they're known here in New England. Everyone used chamber pots that were emptied in the backyard and bathed by hauling water from the basement. So I, as I was reading this, just was wondering kind of how weird was this? You know, it's talked about in the Lizzie literature as being extremely miserly but i really wanted to see kind of what was the norm at this time so Mm -hmm. for context running water was first plumbed into the white house in 1833 during president franklin pierce's term thomas crapper uh, who famously invented and patented the valve and siphon toilet design he patented that design in 1891 a couple things yeah (laughs) crapper i know (laughs) that's unbelievable (laughs) and also which president's term franklin pierce i feel as though the american public education system has failed me because i don't think i've ever heard that name (laughs) yeah franklin pierce is in new hampshire like i think he said live free or die that's him i'm pretty sure fact check me while i continue I always thought that the most obscure president was Chester Arthur. (laughs) I mean, that's pretty obscure. I'm like, Franklin Pierce? What? (laughs) (laughs) Cool, cool. Yeah. Anyway, crap, I didn't know that was like like a name. (laughs) 
I know, right? Ugh. Yeah. I don't know how, like, the etymology, if it is actually tied to... I mean, it must be, but I didn't... I tried to stay as focused as is possible for me to remain on this. Sorry for the tangent. No, no. I'm assuming that the term crapper is in some way traced back to Thomas Crapper. And in 1895... When the Breakers Mansion in Newport, Rhode Island was completed, it had full running water, hot and cold, seawater and fresh, throughout the 138,000 square foot, quote, cottage. So granted, the Bordens weren't the first family and they didn't have the wealth of the Vanderbilts, but it would have been expected that someone of his wealth and standing would have running and heated water indoors and possibly even an early indoor toilet of some kind. So, you know, I think it's safe to say that his frugality, you know, flirted with the line of, um, I think abusive is too strong, but cruel, <laughs> unkind, <laughs> unfeeling, mm -hmm. you know, in that, in that range. Because all of these things were far too extravagant for Andrew to consider as were fancy dresses of fine fabric and construction for his daughters or multiple servants to do every last household chore, which would have easily been within his means. In fact, his stinginess and overall tight acidness is said to have hindered both Emma and Lizzie's marriage prospects in spite of their beauty and potential inherited wealth. By the early 1890s, Emma was nearly 40 and Lizzie had already passed 30. They both led quiet lives centered around church and home life. Emma had spent time between 1866 and 1868 at the Wheaton Female Seminary, now known as Wheaton College, in Norton, Massachusetts, which is about 30 minutes north of Fall River by car. But if you'll remember, 1866, when Emma began at Wheaton, is the same year that Andrew married Abby. Related? I don't know. We can only guess. There's no record of this, but I think it's worth noting that those dates coincided. Emma would have been between 14 and 16 during that time. You know, maybe a difficult season of life for a girl to accept a new, quote, mother. Mm-hmm. Lizzie, on the other hand, would have been around six to eight years old during this time. For reasons we can only speculate about now, Emma left Wheaton before graduating, and she returned to the family home and never again left for any significant period until well into old age. What we do know from contemporary records, though, is that Emma was reserved and preferred to spend her time at home or in the company of close friends. By her own admission, she never took a shine to the latter Mrs. Borden and always insisted on calling her Abby, not mother, which seems kind of odd today, but was pretty common at the time for a stepmother who was, you know, married after the death of, of a parent. And notably, she also did not call her Mrs. Borden. She called her Abby. Lizzie, unlike her sister, had no direct memory of her mom, who, you know, we recall died when she was not even three. Mm -hmm. Abby and Lizzie were able to bond to a certain extent, particularly while Emma was away at school. 
and for a time, Lizzie did call her mother. But Lizzie's bond to Emma was strong, and in time, she took on a more distant stance toward her stepmother. By adulthood, and the timing of this is, you know, somewhat contested, and we'll talk about this more later, Lizzie had a cordial but not overly affectionate relationship with Mrs. Borden and referred to her stepmother as her stepmother or Mrs. Borden. Mm -hmm. Her father, though, that was another story. Lizzie was the apple of his eye and he of hers by all accounts. So we talked about the fact that she bore his name as her middle name. And by, by everyone's reckoning, they always had a really special bond. In spite of his fondness, though, you could say that Andrew denied Lizzie in most of the ways a doting father could show love to a daughter at that time. Lizzie's education was not prolonged any more than necessary. She never went to college or a female seminary, as they were sometimes called. Mm -hmm. Lizzie was vocal about wanting a more comfortable home and lifestyle, but Andrew would not budge on that matter either. And socially, he gave her no advantages, like no finery, no welcoming environment for suitors. I mean, the sense that I got from what I read is that it may not have been conscious, but in many ways, he seemed to block any kind of romantic prospects that she might have had. Mm -hmm. In 1887, Andrew transferred one of his rental properties into the name of Abby Borden's sister. And this simple act broke the maybe uneasy piece of the Borden home, which at that time then consisted of five adults, Andrew, Abby, Emma, Lizzie, and a servant. So mm -hmm. in this not palatial home, there are five adults living in a railroad style home. Again, no hallways. So rooms are all adjoining to one another and you have to go through rooms to get to other rooms. And I think even, even by the standards of the day would have been considered fairly small for how many people were in the home. Certainly very small for a family with this kind of wealth. Mm -hmm. Emma and Lizzie saw this act, this transfer of property as an act of betrayal by their father and conniving by their stepmother. For their famously parsimonious father to give something of such value to someone outside of their immediate family was just a step too far. With Emma firmly in spinsterhood by this time and Lizzie fast approaching, if not already there, I think it's fair to say that they were keenly aware of their dismal prospects for old age without a considerable direct inheritance. Mm -hmm. And it was never admitted by either daughter. It doesn't seem a stretch to imagine that they might have thought they one day deserved a considerable sum for enduring their father's cheapness, which most likely led to their spinsterhood in the first place. Yeah. So. Again, that's a little bit of conjecture. There's no, you know, documentation of either of them expressing this, but, you know, just basing it on normal human psychology, you know, they were long suffering in many ways under their father's kind of way of living. Mm -hmm. And so it would be fair to see this transfer of property as indirectly coming out of their inheritance. 
Both of the daughters made quite a fuss about the property transfer at the time, but Lizzie was known to be the most vocal and forceful generally. And so through her as the spokesperson, they both insisted that they each deserved a gift of equal value to the house that had been transferred out of the family. In the end, Andrew agreed to this and gave both women properties valued at $1,500, or about $50,000 today. But things within the home changed after that event, and it's hard to imagine the tension that must have existed in this, again, not terribly large house. Mm -hmm. Some reports and testimony have this time as the time when Lizzie stopped calling Abby mother and started calling her Mrs. Borden. It's also reported that after this time, Emma and Lizzie stopped taking meals with their parents. I think interactions eventually resumed a cordial tone, but they were kept to a bare minimum. Except for when you have to go through each other's rooms. (laughs) (laughs) Again, hard in these circumstances to really stay out of one another's hair. It was reported that Abby spent a lot of time at her stepsister's home and with her stepsister's family. Um, And that kept her away. Lizzie was also really active in her church and in church life and activities. So that kept her away. Emma was a homebody, though. And so, you know, combined with the fact that she was the more grieved of the sisters in regards to the memory of her mother and the sense that Abby had come in and kind of usurped not only her mother's former position, but Emma's position as the, quote, little mother of Lizzie. Mm -hmm. And she was the one who was at home more often. So, you know, potentially festering there. Again, a lot of speculation here because we just don't have a lot of direct insight into what Emma was thinking during this time. But however true these details are, and that's up for debate because reports conflicted. You know, friends of the family said one thing. Bridget had a real insight into the family dynamics. She said something, you know. But by both women's accounts, that year, 1887, and that event of the transferring of property was a watershed year for the family. And there was a lot of discord in the house at that time. Four years later, in 1891, there was another incident in the home that led to tension if not open conflict like they had before. During the day of June 24th, 1891, there was a robbery in the Borden home. And these are Emma's words recounting the incident. Quote, 75 or $80 in money and some horse car tickets were the only things of father's that were stolen, though his desk was ransacked. Good watch and chain, breast pin and earrings of plain Roman gold, no stones, a shawl pin with ball at each end, and some other little things that belonged to Mrs. Borden. The first I knew of it, I was sitting in the front room, heard father knock on door of my bedroom, now Lizzie's. He called me. I unlocked the door and went in. Everything was thrown about. He said he found the door to the hall open and a nail in the lock. He put it in the hands of officers, asked us to say nothing about it, We talked about it. I remember we were all shelling peas in the dining room in the morning, Lizzie and father and myself, with dining room doors shut, end quote. 
Now, it's important to note here that even before the robbery, Andrew was known to be super vigilant about home security, especially compared to the norms of the time. Mm -hmm. Exterior doors were kept locked, even during the day and even with people home, which would have been uncommon for the time. And the doors had multiple keyed locks. The police were summoned after the robbery and they began an investigation, but everyone seemed or pretended to be stumped at how someone could get in and out unseen in broad daylight. Lizzie noted that the cellar door had been open at the time and perhaps someone could have gotten in that way. But a short time after the investigation began, Andrew called it off and said to Captain Desmond of the Fall River Police, quote, I am afraid the police will not be able to find the real thief. End quote. After this, Andrew became even more vigilant, you might even say paranoid. He added locks, bolts, and chains to all the doors, even interior ones. Most notably, his office and bedroom were locked at all times. The most odd part of this, though, is that he placed the key to his bedroom lock on the sitting room mantel for all to see. So he goes to this great show of adding locks and locking interior doors. And a lot of the rooms, again, had adjoining doors. Those were locked and kept locked all the time. And the door that connected Lizzie's room to his room was locked from both sides and there was a dresser pressed up against it from Andrew's side. All of these great measures and then the key that opens the door to his bedroom is placed in public view on the mantle in the sitting room. So some people took this to mean that he knew the robbery was committed by someone in the house and the key was a kind of a taunt or a dare or a way of acknowledging that I know that you did this. That I mean, I guess I can see the thought, but also, so calling off the investigation makes me think he knows who did it. Mm-hmm. But to leave the key there, I guess, I guess that would be a way to test his suspicion that if like anything else went missing and the door was locked, it was someone in the house. Right. But uh, I don't know. it's so weird. Much was made of this, of this key and the lock and the locking and the statement and everything. But whatever Andrew's belief may have been about who committed the robbery, he never shared it publicly, and the case remains unsolved to this day. In spite of these two notable incidents, which truly, if not for what happened later, would have probably faded into complete historical obscurity, the Borden home was never described by those who knew it intimately as an unhappy one. But on August 4, 1892, a tragedy befell the Borden family of such magnitude that no part of their lives, from major family squabbles to what they ate for breakfast, would ever fade into obscurity. That's the day that an unknown hand ended the lives of Abby Durfee Gray Borden, age 64, and Andrew Jackson Borden, age 69. From the beginning, that day was not a typical day in the Borden house. To begin with, Fall River was suffering from a historic heat wave. Or was it? Side note here, the temperature is often noted as being the hottest day of the year. Some sources even say the hottest day ever in Fall River, breaking 100 degrees Fahrenheit in the afternoon. 
it's thought now that this exaggeration came from statements made in court, but I found enough evidence and enough mention of this being an exaggeration or a myth of the case that I pulled the National Centers for Environmental Information historical data for that week. And the high temperature recorded for Fall River on August 4th, 1892 was 87 degrees Fahrenheit or about 30 degrees Celsius for our international listeners. So was it hot as balls? Yes, absolutely. 87 degrees with no air conditioning in a cramped mill town wearing Victorian garb. That would be highly uncomfortable to say the least. And, Mm -hmm. you know, enough to cause people to comment on it and mention it for sure. So why do I mention it in it at this moment and go into so much detail? Well, I think it's worth noting because it calls out this fact that the details of this case, large and small, were distorted from the very beginning. And this is one kind of factoid that is easy to prove as misinformation because we have these historic weather records, but it's by no means the only thing that got exaggerated um, or straight up, you know, lies told about it throughout this case. Mm -hmm. The day of August 4th was also atypical because one household member was away and a guest was present. So Emma had decamped to Fairhaven, Massachusetts, about 15 minutes to the east on Buzzards Bay to visit friends. According to later telling, she had gone to escape the oppressive heat, but again, I don't know if this is true. Records show that just a few days before August 4th, it had been in the 60s in Fall River. But whatever the reason, we know for a fact, and the alibi was checked thoroughly, Emma was with friends, all day on Thursday in Fairhaven. Yeah, random question. Totally fine if you don't know the answer. Mm-hmm. Was there, I get that there were almanacs, but like, uh, was there like meteorology or was it just you find out what happens that day? <laughs> so yeah, there were almanacs and they had kind of general predictions And I looked up some contemporary newspaper clippings from the time in the local paper. And there was a weather section, but it was very kind of general compared to what we would think of as a weather column. It said it read something like, in New England, continuing clouds and blah, blah. And it's like, New England, that's all the way, you know, (laughs) past the border of Canada all the way down to practically New York. So... You know, that gives you a sense of the vagueness. But yeah, there were almanacs and there were, you know, weather columns in the paper, but it was pretty vague. And, you know, I don't know how common it would be for people to have a thermometer like outside on the porch to see what the temperature was. If people were like, oh, it's just hot as balls or if they could look and see, you know, the weather people were taking readings, but whether that was kind of published and broadcast or that was widely known i don't know yeah i just wondered if you would know if a heat wave was coming or not i mean i think and it feels like probably not maybe ish but yeah the weather had turned just the day before 
Um, and then it did continue to be in the high 80s for several days after. But when Emma had gone, it would have still probably been cool and overcast. Mm-hmm. Also, you know, unusual for the household, they had a, a visitor that morning when they woke up. And his name was John Vinicum Morse. And he was Emma and Lizzie's maternal uncle. He had arrived unexpectedly the day before with the intention of staying for several days, though oddly enough, he came with no luggage, just the clothes on his back. And we'll go more into weird Uncle Morse later. But Mm. to the crime, he was there on that morning. And lastly, the day of the crime had a slightly unusual rhythm as well because several members of the home had been feeling unwell since the previous day or a couple of days before. So on the morning of August 4th, the house came to life around 6.15 in the morning when Bridget Sullivan, the family maid, woke and began her daily chores. John came downstairs from the guest room on the second floor around 6.20 Abby came down around 6.30, and Andrew followed around 6.50. At about 7 a.m., Abby, Andrew, and John had breakfast. And this breakfast, as I alluded to earlier, is kind of famously known in the case as um, leftovers of mutton stew and Johnny cakes, which are a kind of cornmeal pancake. Mm-hmm. After they ate breakfast, John, Andrew, and Abby went to the sitting room for a period of time. Now, John left the house to visit other nieces in the area sometime before 8.45 that morning. And we know this because he reported on that time, and we also know it because Lizzie reported coming downstairs at around 8.45 or 8.50, for breakfast and she did not see John and he did not see her. When she came downstairs, she initially went to the cellar to wash up, again, the only fresh water in the house. She reported seeing Abby dusting in the dining room and Andrew reading the paper in the sitting room, but again, not seeing John. After Lizzie had come down and breakfast was over, Bridget, who was still not feeling well, went to the backyard and threw up. Lizzie, also feeling a bit unwell and having the breakfast already completed and put away, she skipped the mutton and opted just for a couple of cookies and maybe a cup of coffee. Around 9 a.m., Bridget returned to the kitchen. She finished clearing the dishes, and she reported at that time not seeing Lizzie in the kitchen. She did report seeing Abby dusting, as Lizzie had described, but she didn't see Andrew. Abby, around that time, although we don't know exactly when, asked Bridget to wash the windows that day of the house, inside and out. And then Abby went upstairs. Again, we don't have a definite time on this. It's sometime between 9 and 9.30. She went upstairs to change over the guest room where John had slept the night before. Sometime after 9, Lizzie reportedly prepared to iron some handkerchiefs in the kitchen. And this would have been a pretty laborious project then. You'd have to get the, they were called iron flats, which were just solid iron pieces with handles, and put them on the stove to heat them. Um, She started doing this sometime around 9. 
And Bridget then started preparing for the window washing outside, and that was around 9.30. At some point between 9 and 10, and the timing of this changes from person to person and from telling to telling, but sometime between 9 and 10, Andrew left for work and possibly to go to the post office. Between 9.30 and 10, Lizzie spoke to Bridget, who was outside, and she talked to her from the back door. She asked her about, you know, cleaning the windows or something, if she was going to go into town later. At 10.20, Bridget went inside to wash the inside of the sitting room windows. So if we go back and look at this, between 9.30 and 10.20, Bridget was outside for all of that time. Lizzie was inside doing various things. We don't totally know. She was ironing. She was doing this and that, reading a magazine. At 10.20, Bridget comes inside. Then around 10.30 to 10.40, Andrew returned from his errands. So he wasn't gone for very long. He returned mm -hmm. from his errands. He comes to the front door, and his, his key is not working. So Bridget goes over to the front door to let him in, and it's jammed. She's fumbling with the lock. And while she does so, she lets out a curse of some kind. Now, she reported hearing Lizzie laugh, she thought, at the curse that she had said, um, from the upstairs landing of the front stairs. Eventually, she gets the door open, Andrew comes in, and about five minutes after Andrew had come home, Bridget said Lizzie came in from the front of the house, from the sitting room, so from the direction that she had been, into the dining room where Andrew was then. At that time, Bridget heard Lizzie tell her father that Abby had received a note earlier in the morning calling her away to visit a sick friend. At about quarter of 11, Andrew went up to his room to retrieve something. We don't know what for sure. He was back in the sitting room by about 10.55, according to Bridget. During that same interval, while Lizzie was coming in. Andrew went upstairs. There's back and forth. Bridget was finishing the inside windows in the dining room mm -hmm. and cleaning up the, the dirty water and putting all of that away. Around 10.55, so about the same time Andrew came back downstairs, she saw him and then she excused herself to go to her third floor bedroom to rest. She was still not feeling well and the day was getting hot. Mm hmm during this time, Lizzie reported that she had gone to the barn to search for some iron to make fishing sinkers. So she had a trip to their farm in Swansea, which is about 10 minutes to the west. She had a visit planned for the coming week. So she, while she was waiting for the irons to heat up, she had this idea she was going to go find iron for the sinkers. She walks out the back door, she gets pears from the backyard, and she goes into the barn to look for this iron and to eat the pears. She doesn't really know how long she was out there. She lost track of time, but she thinks maybe 20 minutes. She reported seeing no one go in or out of the house or anyone around the house during this time. She then went back inside around 11.10, at which time she found her father on the couch in the sitting room murdered. Lizzie shouted for Bridget to come down quick, father is dead, and immediately Lizzie sent Bridget for Dr. Bowen, family friend, physician, and neighbor, 
who went to the house right away and also sent for police to come. After police arrived and began questioning Bridget, Lizzie, and John, who returned to the house a little before noon, in light of her father's death, Lizzie kind of wondered aloud to police if her stepmother might not be home after all, um, rather than out as she had believed because of this note. Bridget uh-huh. went upstairs to search for Abby, and she found her collapsed in the front guest room, again where John had slept the night before, also apparently murdered, presumably by the same hand. So that's the timeline of the morning. And I go into all of this detail because it comes up later. But just know that a lot of these time references are, you know, subject to different reports, different reports over time. One of the things that Dr. Bowen did for Lizzie when he first arrived is he he prescribed and administered a morphine concoction to calm her down. So again... Here she is, normalish kind of day. She's out in the barn doing whatever. She walks in and discovers her father this way. Now, we haven't talked about the wounds yet, but I think most people who have any familiarity with the case know that he was killed with an axe or a hatchet of some kind. And most reports say that he was virtually unrecognizable. So Lizzie immediately went into shock. Yeah. She's administered some kind of morphine concoction, and then the police begin questioning her pretty much immediately in spite of this kind of impaired state of shock combined with morphine. So if you look back at transcripts, her version of things is pretty muddled and confused and times change and sequencing changes. Um, A lot of people took that to be evidence of her involvement. But for now, I'm just going to mention that, you know, the timeline is not perfectly known, but these are kind of the ranges that through the combination of different witnesses, the police eventually put together. Yeah. So we've gone through kind of the major movements of the known players, but what happened to Andrew and Abby? Again, we just have kind of talked about the sequence leading up to it. Again, most people who know this case at all know that they were murdered with some kind of sharp implement like a hatchet or an axe. Abby, believed to be the first to die, had been struck on the side of her head while facing her assailant with the blunt edge of some kind of bludgeoning weapon, could be an axe or a hatchet, and they believe that that caused her to spin and then collapse onto her face. She had wounds to her nose and her forehead and her chin that would be consistent with falling onto your face without bracing from your arms. Once she had fallen onto her face and and the front of her body, she received 17 more blows with the sharp edge, sharp blade. They all were administered to the back of her head, and all of them penetrated her scalp, and most of them penetrated her skull as well. By the time she was found, sometime after 11.20 that morning, Abby had been dead for some time. Final estimates put her time of death between 9.30 and 10.30, but the science at that time is not precise and... You know, we may not ever Mm -hmm. know exactly when she died, but it's pretty conclusive that she died first. Her blood, the blood had already coagulated and was beginning to dry. 
Um, and they did, I think, take body temperature and, you know, other measures that were available to them at the time. And the consensus was that she had died first. Andrew's time of death, we know with a lot more precision, simply because there was a very short window of time between when he was last seen alive and when Lizzie called for help. Yeah. So again, going back, he was last seen alive at about 1055 by Bridget. And Lizzie shouted to Bridget for help around 1110. So 15 minute, we have a 15 minute window. Now, you know, I would say we could call it a plus or minus five on either side. So, you know, let's say we do a minus five and a plus five. We're still only really talking about 25 minutes here to play with. Mm -hmm. There was testimony about, you know, the town clock chiming 11 and you know, this and that. But again, I think we just have to assume that all of these times are kind of fuzzy. But the police did go back and look at clocks and check them against the official time in the clock tower. Um, so, you know, some due diligence was done here to pin this down. But within that short window, whether it was 15 minutes or 25, someone had landed 11 blows from an axe or hatchet again to the front and side of Andrew's head. When Dr. Bowen arrived, he also noted that Andrew had not been dead for long. And one of the ways that he knew this, besides, again, this very short window of opportunity, is that his blood had not yet coagulated. And in fact, some of his wounds were still flowing. So, you know, Lizzie came upon the scene so quickly after it had happened, if we do believe that she came upon the scene as she said that she did and not inflicted it herself so that is the crime kind of in a nutshell and it's a very big nutshell but um you know i present a lot of detail there because it will come up later when we get into the aftermath the trial and then of course the theories of the case Mm -hmm. what do you think any surprises there for you well the window of time with andrew Mm mm-hmm and like, so I guess, I don't know, I <laughs> I feel like I don't want to get into it because we're going to have the whole theories discussion, mm-hmm. but that's not a lot of time to go down to the only spigot in the basement and clean all of the blood and be presentable and not wet because that crime, you would be really bloody. Yeah. Yeah. I would think. I I think, and that was the testimony all throughout, is that whoever did this, and they, they clarified that because Abby was on the ground, whoever had done it would be covered in blood from the feet to at least the waist, if not higher. And whoever had killed Andrew would be covered in blood from at least the waist to the head because he was up higher on, on a couch. And so, you know, you put those two things together and whoever had done this would be covered from head to toe completely with blood. But the flip side, if you had a really thick Victorian dress that went to the ground, went up the neck and to the wrists. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, not for nothing, but the, we'll save that for. Yeah. Oh, we're going to get all into it, all into it. Any other kind of things that struck you or stood out or surprised you? 
Well, I didn't know that the random uncle was there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, old Uncle John. So, as we mentioned at the beginning, we kind of started out with one sense of how this was going to go, and then when we got into it, we realized that it was taking us in places we didn't, we didn't totally expect as well as we knew the case. And so we're going to change up our format just a little bit on this one. And we're actually going to do a three-parter, our first three-parter. And so our next episode, when we come back for episode 51, Andrew's going to jump into the culture. Yes, which will then lead us (laughs) into (laughs) theories, speculation, and I don't know. I don't know. We can't say fact. <laughs> <laughs> our our beliefs about yes. the case. Yes. It's an exciting one to finally be covering and to be able to do it in this way. And I'm excited about this kind of slightly different format we're taking. Yes. And I can't wait to tell you. I mean, I know I've already alluded it to you privately that. Yes. The pop culture went in ways I didn't anticipate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> so I, can't I can't wait to wait. have that discussion. All right. So we hope you enjoyed this episode and have come along this far with us. And join us next week for more on Lizzie Borden, who may or may not have taken an axe. <laughs> yes, very much that. <laughs> and as always, we appreciate the hell out of you. Absolutely. Please head over to Apple Podcasts and rate and review our show. It really helps us out. Plus, we'll read five-star reviews on an upcoming episode. This has been a Facts from Janet production. 